This is the Capness HR Podcast, and we want you to be great every day. Join us as we transform the human resources outsourcing industry while we talk to small business owners, founders, and people in tech, startup, and HR spaces. Now, please welcome your host, Jason Capness. The Capness HR Podcast is brought to you by SM Diversity. SM Diversity is a full services staffing recruit agency. SM Diversity is currently looking to fill numerous principal software engineer positions in the Seattle area. The requirements for these positions are as follows. A computer science or related degree, eight plus years of overall experience, then one plus years of leadership experience, solid experience with cloud-based service development, extensive experience in building, deploying, and managing large distributed applications, experience with agile development methods, experience with DevOps and CI CD tools and methods. A preferred qualification is to have a strong network in the Seattle tech community. This position is going to be, actually all these positions are going to be located in the downtown Seattle area. So this is not going to be a remote work opportunity for anyone. If you're interested in learning more, send me an email at jasoncabinets at cabinetshr.com. Hello, and welcome to Cabinets HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Our guest today is Jessica Vittorio. Jessica, are you ready to be great today? Yeah, I am, always. Jessica is a managing attorney at the law office of Jessica Vittorio, an adjunct professor of business law and a host of a weekly business-related podcast. She received her BA from Southwestern University and earned her JD from Baylor Law School. Her practice is based in Dallas, Texas, and focuses on providing startups and small business owners the insight and experience they need to properly grow their business. Jessica is active in the startup and entrepreneurial community throughout Texas and regularly helps to advise companies on formation, fundraising, M&A, governance, and other daily operational issues. Jessica is a strong believer that by understanding a company's philosophy and values, you can empower her clients to establish and grow the business in ways that will enable future success. In addition to her work within the business community, she also serves on the board of various organizations as an active member of the Law Practice Management Committee of the State Bar of Texas. Jessica, you have quite a full face there, don't you? I do. I don't like to be bored, so I've actively avoided that. <laughs> Southwest, that's the school in Georgetown, Texas, right? It is, okay. yeah. I'm surprised you're familiar with it. Yes, yes. Not so, that it's not a great school. It's very small, though. Very small, yes. How many people ask you, oh, that, is that the Georgetown in D.C.? Yeah, I get Georgetown in D.C. a lot. Also, it uh, Texas State used to be Southwest Texas, so people always get those two confused. Yes. So what's keeping you busy right now, Jessica? What's your focus on right now? Yeah. So most of what I do is, like my bio says, I own a law firm that specializes in transactional business for startups and tech companies. So that is, you know, the bulk of what keeps me busy every day. I always like to say that I um, get to help people a lot cooler and smarter than me change the world and hopefully facilitate them doing that in some way. So it's a fun job. I enjoy it. So why startups? Why not something else with your law degree? Why, why go to startups? Yeah. So actually, when I first graduated law school, I worked for Congress for a year. Um, I was legislative counsel for a member of the House of Representatives. And it was a great experience. I really loved it. But um, 
through working on small business policy, intellectual property policy. I got to talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners. And also, it just wasn't really the traditional practice of law. And I wanted to go back to something more traditionally practicing with clients. Um, so why small businesses or entrepreneurs and tech companies? Both of my parents are actually entrepreneurs themselves. And so I grew up kind of in that world and understanding business owners and interacting with business owners. And I just really have a passion for helping enable um, that demographic of people to do what they do best. So do you only practice in Texas? All of my companies have some nexus to Texas. So all of them have some connection to Texas, whether they're registered here or we're working on a transaction that's based in Texas. But not all of my clients are based here year-round. So I have some clients in California. I have some clients on the East Coast and kind of everywhere in between. So it really just ends. So the other states, do you have to have an actual bar license to go to those states and practice? Or how does that work? Yeah. So if I was going to go to California and work with a company that was based in California and all of their work was in California, I would have to have a license in California. And for that reason, I have a couple of partners, not formal partners, but individuals that I collaborate with a lot that are in various states in California. Um, So I'll work with them in the event that I'm working on something that requires a state license in a state that I'm personally not licensed. So when a startup comes to you and they want you to advise them and you know, join the team, so to speak, what makes you say yeah. no to a startup to advise them? Really, for me, it's the passion of the entrepreneur themselves. I like to work with companies that there's a reason bigger than profit driving them. Profit's great. We all love profit. I don't live in a world where profit isn't important. But um, I also want to work with people that have a bigger underlying passion because there's a million and one ways to make money. And in the entrepreneurial community, we see that a lot. People come up with ways to make money. And that's great. But what I really enjoy is working with the entrepreneurs or the founding team that have a personal connection to what it is that they're doing and really are trying to make the world better in some way, shape, or form. So that's kind of the determining factor for me. For the startups you either advise or just seen in general, what characteristics do you see in the founders that you would say make them successful? Definitely a willingness to work hard. I think the startup community gets a weird reputation for a lot of people that are only working three or four hours a day. I know that's a big thing. And that's always hilarious to me because I'm constantly emailing clients. I get emails from clients at like one, two, three in the morning. So these are people that really are working so many more hours than a traditional nine to five. So having the stamina and the endurance and the passion to be able to put in the hours. And also, like I said, going back to believing in the concept enough to actually vocalize what your idea is and being confident enough to be able to do that. I think that's one of the hardest parts of being an entrepreneur. And what I see in clients is they may have a great idea, but if they don't have someone on their team that can articulate that idea, then it's not going to do anyone any good. Definitely having the confidence in this to be able to articulate what it is you're trying to do in a compelling way. Yeah, I have my own startup and that's definitely a myth. I mean, (laughs) 
What if somebody say you, uh, you uh, leave your 40 an hour a week job to work 80 hours a week in order not to work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for free for a really long time. Um, and to be fair, it's the same in the legal profession. Like I have people call me every day that I went to law school with that I know professionally and they'll say, Jessica, you seem to like your practice and your life so much. I want to do what you do. I'm like, cool. I think everyone should own a business, be an entrepreneur if they want to be. But also what I don't tell or what I tell them is what you are not seeing is the two years when I made zero dollars, basically. (laughs) So do it, but also recognize the situation you're getting yourself into. Because I also think that becomes an issue. People don't plan enough on the back end, be it leaving a job. They're not prepared for the financial strain that starting a business can put on them. And that becomes an issue either in their personal life or with their partner or whatever the situation is. Yeah, I think a lot of people quit the job and say, you know, I got six months of savings are good. Well, well, odds are you getting a profit in six months are pretty slim to none. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're making a consistent, decent profit within three years, you're doing well. And that statistic, I think, is one people forget a lot of times. Yes. So from your time advising startups, what do founders consistently get wrong about the process? I think one of the best things about entrepreneurs is that they have a do-it-yourself, go-getter mentality which is great for being an entrepreneur, but there comes a point in every business where you have to recognize what it is you don't know and bring in professionals who know how to do those things. So I see a lot of young companies not devoting monetary resources to accountants and lawyers and things like that. And not to say you should be spending all of your cash on hand on professional service, but... I see a lot of companies come to me when they're trying to do their first or second round of fundraising. And we end up having to go back and, you know, retroactively correct a lot of things that legally, if they had just done properly in the first place, would have saved everyone some headache. So preparing that sort of foundation from the front end, as opposed to trying to deal with all those issues when you're looking for money from a VC or an angel or whatever, I think that's probably the biggest mistake. They're so used to being the source of knowledge and structure and um, vision for everything that they're doing that they don't always reach out to people when they need to. Jessica, when should I found start the fundraising practice? I mean, fundraising process should be like after they have a certain amount of traction, some number of customers, or what's your advice on that? I think it varies wildly. A, you have to know what kind of fundraising you're trying to do. Are you trying to do just a friends and family round? Are you, do you have traction and numbers that an angel or a fund could look at? And it also varies by your target and by industry. There are some industries where all uh, an angel or a fund really needs to see is a concept, a strong concept with maybe a little bit of validation. Some industries want to see, you know, a year's worth of numbers or six months worth of numbers before they'll even begin talking. The best thing a founder can do is connect with other founders so that they have people to bounce that that experience off of. And also there are a ton of great books about it that they can check out if they want to. So do your research basically. Just, you know, you know, everyone says, you know, don't quit, you know, keep on going, you know, work through the hard times. It's not an easy process. But 
we sort of found yeah. a stop. Like we sort of found to say, you know what, this isn't working <laughs> out. You know, the MVP is not working. When when you really tell someone, hey, you know, this idea, this process might not be working right now. Maybe you need to do something completely different. Yeah, um, I think every founder should go into a project, especially an early stage project, with their cutoff point in mind. Because what you see, especially in cities outside of Silicon Valley, where the cost of living is lower, is people can hang on to ideas for a lot longer because their cost of living isn't expensive, their overhead isn't as expensive, so they can hang on to an idea that's not making them any money and really try to push it probably for longer than they should be. And I think part of it is, A, go into it with some concept of when am I going to call it quits if I don't get an investor at a certain point, if I can't find a technical co-founder at a certain point, all of those, if I don't hit certain KPIs, or also be aware that you need to be listening to the feedback you're getting from people, Um, especially angel investors, venture capitalists, other people in the community. Obviously, you don't need to take everything that the capital, the people with the capital say is gospel, but... If you're consistently talking to angel investors or venture capitalists and they're telling you that they don't think it's a great idea, it's not something they would ever invest in, at some point, you have to realize that maybe there's some validity to that. As people that see hundreds of companies a week, you do have to take into account that they are subject matter experts. Not to say that you should, like I said, take that as gospel, but you definitely should... um take it in under advisement, I think. So another question. So, you know, a lot of, you know, startup founders that, you know, that you try to contact VCs, whatever. And of course, VCs, a lot of founders don't realize how these are VCs are. They're literally getting hundreds of emails, calls a day, you know, have a lot of noise to go through. How would you advise a startup founder to contact a VC if they don't know any VCs? I think solving the foundational issue first, the best time to talk to an angel investor or venture capitalist, or at least the ones that, you know, I interact with, they prefer to be reached out to before the founders actually fundraising. They want to establish a relationship with them prior to them actually doing a fundraising round. Um, and I think that that's a beneficial relationship to try to get because then they can give you some insight into, hey, these are red flags for us, just so you know when you do a fundraising round and you can keep those things in mind as you're progressing through your company. Assuming that you haven't developed those connections already, you know, try to find someone else in the community that has them. In my experience, it's a lot easier to connect with capital when you're being connected through an individual as opposed to just cold calling. And to be fair, um, there are plenty, I know plenty of angels and beasts who actually do read every presentation that's sent to them. And I think maybe that's an additional thing to keep in mind is when you start sending your pitch deck and your uh, executive summary out to potential investors, it should be a well-oiled machine at that point. You should have gotten a lot of feedback on it. Don't send them your first draft pitch deck or executive summary because they're going to give you a minute to scan over it. If they find something intriguing, maybe they'll keep looking. If they don't find something intriguing, they're going to move on to the other 500 emails that they got in the afternoon related to the exact same thing. So 
taking, don't give them a reason to pass over your pitch deck and your executive summary. Make sure that it, if, especially if you're just cold sending emails and you're not, you're not personally reaching out to them through a mutual connection, then definitely make sure that your pitch deck is good to go. So in Texas, Dallas and Austin are the, are the two main startup areas, correct? Or the other areas that are like real big startups? I mean, Houston and San Antonio also have some startup activity. So I wouldn't say it's just Austin and Dallas. Austin certainly gets the most press. Um, I think Dallas doesn't really get enough press for the amount of great startups that we have coming out of Dallas. But um, all the major cities are involved in the startup scene to some extent. So Jessica, moving on, can you talk about a time you were successful in the past, what you learned from this success and what we can learn from this? Yeah, I think something I always think about is the first private equity deal that I worked on. It was not even really an early stage company. They'd been around for quite a while, but the founding team was very young. They, none of them had, well, the majority of them did not have experience in this type of dealing previously. And so it's one thing to try to sit down with one entrepreneur or founder and explain the technicalities and the nuances of a private equity deal, but to do it with a board of multiple young founders is definitely a challenge. Um, and also, you know, I was a young attorney as well and was working on my client management skills and communicating with my clients. So it was definitely a learning experience, but you know, we successfully negotiated the deal, all the paperwork got done, and they eventually got the money that they needed. So it was successful. I think the biggest thing that I learned from that is you have to find a way as an attorney, or even like we were talking about earlier as a founder, you have to find a way to communicate the information you're trying to convey to people in a manner they can actually understand. Because if I am not, if I hadn't communicated to them the technicalities of that deal in a way that they actually could comprehend and, you know, tangibly understood, then they couldn't make an informed decision as founders. And that's not the position that you want to be in as an advisor or as a counselor. So same thing as a founder, making sure that you're communicating and articulating your idea in a way that your audience can understand or else your idea is not doing anyone any good. Jessica, next, talk about a time you failed in the past, what you learned from this experience or we can learn from this experience. There was, when I worked for Congress, there was one point when the congressman I was working for had asked me to draft a piece of legislation, which was something that I did regularly. And so we kind of flushed out the legal technicalities and the structure of this piece of legislation. I spent a lot of time drafting it. I send it to this uh, third-party group that just kind of checks over legislation. And they email me back literally within two minutes. And you, you always know that that's a bad sign because that means there's something fundamentally wrong. And so they email me back in two minutes and they're like, Oh, what you're trying to do, it had to do with the tax on exports. And they were like, what you're trying to do is blatantly unconstitutional. You cannot tax exports per XYZ section of the constitution. And my, needless to say, my boss was not happy with, <laughs> with me. And, um, you know, 
part of the conversation that we had following that experience was, well, isn't it your job to know something like that? And I was fresh out of law school at the time. I was the only attorney in the office. And so I had never really encountered an experience where a client or someone I was working with and advising really expected me to know everything about all the laws in the world, which is just not realistic, right? No one can know that. And so it was a failure in that instance, but it taught me two things. One, you have to know what you don't know. And two, you have to be willing to communicate that. There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know if you can do this, but I know how to find out and I can go research it and check it. When I was really young and newly licensed, I didn't like saying that because I thought that it made me look like I didn't know what I was doing. When really, I think the exact opposite now. If you ever encounter an attorney who tells you they know the answer to everything that you may encounter as a business or, you know, as an individual, that person is lying to you. <laughs> like there's, that's just not accurate. No one can know all the laws and no one can be good at all of them. Yeah, I'm saying with the HR people, whenever HR person says, I'm an expert, I know everything, I just always cringe, like, that's impossible. <laughs> yeah, no I know. I know. That's, that's the first thing. I mean, even I used to work in energy and environment law, and that's an area where, you know, you'll have someone that does water regulations and air regulations, and those are very different areas. So when I used to meet environmental attorneys who said, oh, I just do environmental law, it's like, well, what area do you specialize in? If they can't communicate that, I start to get a little worried about them because it's like, there are too many regulations for you to be good at all of them. Yes. So Jessica, now tell us about someone who has helped in the past and how they helped you. Yeah, there have been a lot of people that have helped me throughout my career. I've been really lucky. My my parents, my mom especially, has been a big help. Like I said, she's an entrepreneur. She owns a very successful company. And she was really supportive when I decided to go out on my own, you know, financially in the very beginning, but also just emotionally supportive of what I'm going through and the decisions I'm trying to make. So that's been really helpful. There are subject matter mentors that I have in terms of finding other attorneys that own practices, work in the same area as me that have been really supportive and helped me to grow my practice. I have some really funny stories related to stupid things I did with the practice when I first opened. And thankfully, I had some willing mentors that were willing to give me advice in the very beginning. But also now, you know, the community helps me all the time. It could be someone who just started their company yesterday, but getting feedback from them, talking to them, um, you know, just creating a sense of community, all those things really help me do my job better. And so I'm really grateful just for the community that we have in Dallas Fort Worth. Jessica, tell us something about yourself that most people don't, people don't know. Your, your family, close friends know this, but people that deal with you day to day don't know this about yourself. This is the hardest one. I was trying to think of this. Probably that I am a terrible runner. I have been told on multiple occasions that I run like a penguin by like different people. (laughs) 
So there you go. Now, now all the internet knows that. I'm so excited. That's pretty funny. We're going to have to find a video of you putting it in the podcast. I know. As soon as I say that, the first thing people say is, well, now I have to see you run. And I'm like, I will probably, I'm pretty convinced how I will die is like not running from something because I hate running in public that much. There will be something I have to run from and I just won't do it. <laughs> Jessica, I understand you have a book to recommend for our listeners. I do. So I was thinking about it. And as we went through this, I thought of a second one. So the original one I was going to say is a really cool book called MindWise that I just read recently by Nicholas Epley. It talks about how we attempt to understand what other people are thinking and feeling. And I think it goes back to that communication that we were just talking about and being able to articulate your point. But then a really foundational one, especially for founders who are going to be doing fundraising, is Venture Deals by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. Um, it's a great book. It's been around for a while, but I do think it gives a really good high-level summary of the venture deal process and what to be on the lookout for and just familiarizing you with vocabulary. Yes, I understand you have something for our listeners. I do, yeah. So anyone that reaches out to me for a consultation or needs transactional work done following this, if they mention that they listen to the podcast and to the interview, I will give them 20% off of their first three hours of work along with their uh, free initial consultation. Yes, can you provide us your social media links so people can reach out to you? Yeah. So you can connect with me personally on LinkedIn at Jessica Vittorio. You can also find me on Instagram, JessV1235. And then I have a podcast called uh, Shit Your Lawyer Says. And it's about weekly business. We kind of talk about a legal business concept every week. So you can find that on Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, YouTube, etc. And for our listeners, we have the links to her uh, book recommendations. I'll have social media links on our show notes. And you can find our show notes at www.cabinetshrblog.com. Jessica, we'll come to the end of our talk. Can you provide any last-minute words of advice or wisdom to our listeners on any subject you want to talk about? Um, I think the biggest thing that I always tell, you know, try to remind myself and founders that I'm working with is... A, find something you're passionate about and then be true to yourself in the process of trying to achieve that goal. You're always going to be a poor imitation of someone else. And it's great to have inspiration. But at the end of the day, the more authentic you can be to who you are as a person, the more people respond to that positively. And I think the more successful you'll be in the long run. Thank you, Jessica. Jessica, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Kavnis HR. For more exclusive content, as well as your free copy of HR Laws, be sure to visit KavnisHR.com or connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook at Kavnis HR. Thanks again, and be great every day.